is our last night for the affirmative class. Many things we could do. Um, I'll read a few of the suttas and uh, just uh, expecting comments and questions to just arise naturally as we talk together, reflect together about impermanence and about this last part of the class where we've been looking using the it's really a story of death. You know, we have the story of our demise or the demise of the body and how we can skillfully use it. I mean clearly we can use it in unskillful ways. We can become obsessed about not dying, for example, or dressing the body up so it doesn't look like it's ever going to die, which is part of our culture, that we all buy into to some degree. You know, we it's so clear how we're afraid of death by how we all do our best not to look old. And just culturally, you know, looking old is not so good, and looking young is good. And that's interesting, I mean, because objectively, why? Like, why do we define beauty as youth? This is uh, one of the mindfulness of death discourses from the Buddha. The Buddha was staying at the brick hall. There he addressed the practitioners. Practitioners, mindfulness of death when developed and pursued is of of great fruit, great benefit. It gains a footing in the deathless, has the deathless as its final end. And how is mindfulness of death developed and pursued so that it is of great fruit, great benefit, gains a footing in the deathless and has the deathless as its final end? There is a case where a practitioner, as day departs and night returns, reflects, many are the possible causes of my death. A snake might bite me, a scorpion might sting me, a centipede might bite me. That would be how my death would come about. That would be an obstruction for me. Stumbling, I might fall. My food, digested, might trouble me. My bile might be provoked, my phlegm, piercing wind forces, and the body might be provoked. So I guess there was a long list, so my phlegm, and then many, many, many other things, and then piercing wind forces in in the body might be provoked. That would be how my death would come about. That would be an obstruction for me. Then the practitioner should investigate, are there any evil, unskillful mental qualities unabandoned by me? That would be an obstruction for me were I to die in the night, in the night. If on reflecting one realizes that there are evil, unskillful mental qualities unabandoned by her, that would be an obstruction for her were she to die in the night, then she should put forth extra desire, effort, diligence, endeavor, undivided mindfulness and alertness for the abandoning, abandoning of those same evil, unskillful qualities. Just as when a person whose turban or head was on fire would put forth extra desire, effort, diligence, endeavor, undivided mindfulness and alertness (coughs) to put out the fire 
on their turban or head. In the same way, the practitioner should put forth extra desire, effort, diligence, endeavor, undivided mindfulness and alertness for the abandoning of those same evil, unskillful qualities. But if you don't have that, the Buddha adds, one should dwell in joy and rapture, training oneself day and night in skillful qualities. So I wanted to share that just because uh, the reflection on death it can bring up a couple of things. One of the things it brings up is just a, a peacefulness. Maybe some of you noticed it just in the reflection. Because uh, on a subtle level, the mind doesn't have to practice or act to support its denial. So when we recognize this truth, when we come into alignment with this truth, then we don't have to neurotically be in denial of this truth. And there's a certain peacefulness. And then the other thing that this sutta points out is uh, reflecting on our death, the death of the body, there can be an urgency. And what, this is probably as important as anything in our lives because it's so easy to be superficial. Uh, I probably, like a lot of you, have a busy life right now. And uh, it's just so easy to be literally consumed by the details of the day. And the only thing that seems relevant is just to get through the day. You know, just to get done what absolutely needs to get done, get through the day. But it doesn't take much reflection before we realize that that's not a long-term strategy. Because we may get through the day, and many days even, but we're not really uh, transforming. So... We haven't learned anything. At the time of death, the only thing that can help us, as the reflection suggests, is understanding. Nothing else we're doing now, putting food on the table, as noble as that is, or earning a living as noble as that is, or taking care of people as noble as that is, ultimately doesn't really change anything when we're just getting by. So we want some sense of urgency, like that sutta suggests, you know, to maintain this reflection. How does the Buddha say it? There is a case where a practitioner, as day departs and night returns, reflects. Many are the possible causes of my death. As the day departs and night returns, I wonder if it means you only have to do that at dusk. But at least once a day. <laughs> if not continuously. And I think it's useful for us to consider or reflect on that sense of urgency around impermanence and that, that balance between fear being afraid of impermanence, being afraid of death, but being enlivened by the truth. Because in a way, it's the ultimate humility, like knowing that we don't know this thing, this, I think in some of the other Buddhist traditions, they call this great matter, the great matter of death. 
it's the real issue. And I think I mentioned in a previous class, but I want to just say it again a little bit at least, about for me, this was my formal entry into the Buddhist teachings was this interest in that. And uh, I was young, I just out of college and uh, broke up with someone that I'd been dating for a while. And just naturally, I think in those times, more reflective, like, you know, what the hell am I doing? Who am I? What's important? And uh, my mind, and it wasn't like this, I didn't remember this being a big issue in my life, but and it wasn't like I saw somebody or somebody I knew died or anything like that, but I just got really interested in death. And I don't even remember like how that began. And I started reading and, and thinking really deeply about what does it mean to be somebody who's going to die? Like, how does that... Because, you know, when we're young in our early, mid-twenties, you know, that's a relevant question. Like, what kind of life do I want to live? And so for me it was, given that death was inevitable, what kind of life do I want to live? What's important? What should I be doing? And really seeing how so much of the impulse to do things were in one way or another a denial of death, like a distraction or like uh, Ernst Becker says in his book, which is called Denial of Death, some way of uh, creating immortality, whether it's through raising children or doing something great in the world or you know whatever it might be, that will leave something behind. It's a way of denying that this life ends or something happens that we can't understand. And I just kept chewing on it and reading things and about nine months into that, this is before I started to formally meditate, but I was just, I was a bit obsessed. And then uh, I came across, I started reading more Dharma books, including, uh, this is a book, by a great Indian saint, Ramana Maharshi, um, who died in the early 50s. He was quite famous still. Many people, some of you know Franz Mokol. He has a place in India at the foot of the mountain where Ramana Maharshi sort of spent much of his adult life. And uh, clearly a wise person, if you haven't read any of his writings. He didn't really write anything, but his teachings were recorded. He didn't even speak too much but he did teach a little bit. And uh, what happened to him when he was 13 or 14, he got interested in death and concerned his parents. And anyway, he one day he just lay down and he uh, imagined dying. And he had a big, big opening, evidently. And then started to run away from home and the parents would find him, bring him back, and he'd run away. And he'd do these really extreme practices, even as a teenager, but eventually he ran away and the parents didn't find him for a while. And when they did, he had transformed so much, I forget the exact story, but somehow they just let him be. And eventually, I think his mother for sure became a great student of his, a famous student of his. But in any case, he that was his entrance. So it, it sort of rung a bell for me. Like, well, I could do that. So one day, I remember... It, 
pretty vivid in my mind, you know. I think I just lay down on the couch. I was staying at this house sitting, this place. There's this great bookstore that I good my, one of my best friends was working at called Yes Books. Some of you may have been there in Washington D.C. back in the '80s, and uh, it was like a real spiritual bookstore. They had all the great books in it, and so I was house sitting, and this the owners had this house up an hour hour and a half outside of Washington D.C. where I was living, and it was like floor to ceiling books everywhere, every room, and. Uh, so I just, that's how I discovered all these people. And, uh, so I was reading that book, and I thought, oh, I'll try that. And so I did. And I just lay there, and I did, you know, not something so different than what we did tonight. But I did it a little bit more like, uh, from the inside. Like, what would it be like in the mind? Because th- that's where I was. I was in my mind. I thought, okay. Body's dead. And then, you know, so I was <laughs> just sort of making it up as I went, okay. So, nothingness, <laughs> you know, I don't know how the mind can do that, it's like, and you know, I, but I was really wrapped, because it, it had some momentum in my, mind, in my mind, I was really interested, so I was really working at this, and just the, the absence of activity, the stillness, the nothingness, you know, just imagining that, imagining that, imagining that, for a while, I don't know how long, but for a while, half an hour, hour, something like that. And then, at some point, just a very clear, it sounded like I, you know, I was talking to myself or somebody was talking, but some words just arose, uh, like I mentioned at the end of the guided meditation. Who is this a problem for? Because there was some poignancy as I was imagining sort of the absence of life, you know, that, like in my imagination, the only thing I could do is imagine not what I know. The absence of activity, the absence of seeing, the absence of hearing. And so, as I was doing that, there was a sort of pervasive, you know, emotional quality of, not so much grief, but just a kind of a poignancy of the heart. And, uh, and then the response, like a voice of wisdom, you know, well, who's, who's this a problem for? And right at that time, just something shifted, something opened, like a, like a remembering or a seeing. That that question uh, sort of set up an insight that, like at least, you know, talking about it, it's hard to talk about it, but at least in that moment, clearly the mind couldn't find somebody who would have a problem with that. And that really changed my life from that point on. Just that simple reflection of death. I was really disoriented for at least a month afterward. So you know the story. I was, I was making it. I was right in the beginning of the big transition in my life, and I had some time coming, uh, some time off. That was house sitting was the beginning of uh, I think like three or four months off, and uh, so a few weeks, a few days later, I was home. Actually, just a couple of days later, I was home in Minneapolis. On my way out west, or actually on my way to Alaska, uh, for some backpacking, mountain climbing, and, uh, I was stopped at REI, and I was just, just didn't kind of know what end was up after that insight. And, uh, 
I kept feeling like I was wearing a hat. It's like some of you know about energy centers that open up. And I didn't know anything about that stuff. And it just felt like there was something like there. And uh, anyway, I was based on walking out of REI. And I walked right into plate glass window and broke it. <laughs> just to show, I mean, I'm not that spacey. And uh, the whole big window just came crashing down. <laughs> so, I'm just sharing the story. I know it's a little outrageous. But I'm just sharing it because of, uh, just to get a sense of the potency of this reflection on death. Like, we may think, we all do to some degree, we think, wait, I know I'm going to die. I mean, I'm sure if we gave everybody a few minutes to share, we'd all say, I know I'm going to die. But whether we've really uh, paid a due respect the truth of impermanence, of this, that things are going to radically change. And of course, from a Buddhist point of view, things are radically changing right now. But the fact of our the physical death of the body is a real gateway for us because that we care about. Just even on this very ordinary conventional level, we're very concerned about the body, obviously. So to use that as a gateway into, let's call it radical humility, you know, that we don't know. We don't know really what's going on here. We don't know how to relate to even something as obvious as birth and death, which so completely define all living creatures, this life, all lives. You know, and this is, you know, this is the real danger of our conceptualizing mind is that we can, we're pretty good at telling ourselves stories. And uh, we create some relative stability with the stories we tell ourselves about death, about life, about the body, about everything, basically. But we want to have a sense of the limitations of those stories. This is what's so potent about like the five remembrances that we chanted at the beginning or some of these other teachings. This is from Ajahn Chah. As soon as we're born, we're dead. Our birth and our death are just one thing. It's like a tree. When there's a root, there must be twigs. When there are twigs, there must be a root. You can't have one without the other. A few more discourses to share. When a person has... These are translated by Andy Olensky. When a person has abandoned ignorance and aroused true knowledge... Then, with the fading away of ignorance and the arising of true knowledge, one does not cling to anything in the world. Not clinging, one is not agitated. Not being agitated, one personally attains Nibbāna. If one feels a pleasant feeling, one understands it is impermanent. One understands it is not held to. One understands it is not delighted in. If one feels a pleasant feeling. One feels that pleasant feeling unattached. So the same with unpleasant feelings and neutral feelings. So this is the thing about impermanence. This is a teaching from the Buddha and he really 
says this in so many different ways repeatedly through all the discourses that understanding impermanence, the impermanent nature of things, is a means to transform our relationship to feeling. So much of our lives, culturally, individually, so much of our lives are being driven by how we relate to feeling, the pleasantness or unpleasantness or neutrality of experience. We're quite literally like that image I like so much, many of you have heard me say it many times, about the big ox or the big bull with the ring in its nose and a rope tied to the ring and a little child can make that big ox do whatever it wants because the ox doesn't want to feel the unpleasant feeling of the tug and so is willing to be enslaved forever, you know, to be having to do whatever the little child, you know, whatever the little child asks them to do, to do. And we're like that in very much the same way. Because we're confused about feeling. There's another, maybe I can find it here. Oh yeah, this is an interesting discourse too. From the middle link discourses. Sisters, suppose an oil lamp is burning. Its oil is impermanent and subject to change. Its wick is impermanent and subject to change. Its flame is impermanent and subject to change. And its radiance is impermanent and subject to change. Now would anyone be speaking rightly who spoke thus? While this oil lamp is burning, its oil, wick, and flame are impermanent and subject to change. But its radiance is permanent, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change. No, Venerable Sir. Why is that? Because while that oil lamp is burning, its oil, wick, and flame are impermanent subject to change. So its radiance must be impermanent and subject to change. Good, good, sister. So it is with a noble disciple who sees this as it actually is with proper wisdom. So too, sisters, would anyone be speaking rightly who spoke thus? These six internal bases are impermanent and subject to change. But the pleasant, painful, or neither painful nor pleasant feeling that one experiences independent upon the six internal bases, right? The six ways we're sensitive to thinking, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and seeing. Independence on the six internal bases is permanent, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change. No, Venerable Sir, why is that? Because each feeling arises independence upon its corresponding condition. And with the cessation of its corresponding condition, the feeling ceases. And that's just an interesting proposition for us. You know, this suggestion like a different relationship to feeling. Imagine, just imagine like that independence with feeling. Or that our life, you know, the life we're living and the activity of this life, like what we do in this life, imagine that being freed up from feeling. Because, you know, so much of what we're doing is we're managing feeling. Like even like rubbing our toe or adjusting our body or putting a shawl on or taking a shawl off or eating food or... It doesn't mean that we would purposefully do things that are unpleasant. 
Right, that's immediately where you think, oh, no, I'm not going to do that because then I'll purposely do with tongue clutching. Well, no, that's still being in the world like being driven by feeling. That's why asceticism isn't an answer. I mean, asceticism is a bit like that where I don't want to be dependent on pleasant feelings so I'm going to train my mind to put up with unpleasant feelings. But just to allow, you know, to allow the life to live and pleasant feelings will arise and unpleasant feelings will arise and neutral feelings will arise. But now we're through the deepening understanding of impermanence and the understanding that whatever feeling arises is also impermanent. Not self. Unsatisfying. Not worthy of grasping. It's like we don't really know what that life would be like. A life that is liberated from the being enslaved by a relationship or conventional relationship to feeling. And that's why, you know, we like stories of saints because they have this lightness, this way of being, this way of responding that is liberated, is not about managing feelings. You know, I, I uh, early on I studied a lot of teachings from this person named uh, Swami Shivananda. He was an Indian saint who died in the early 60s, and he had this great song he would sing in English: um, "Adapt, adjust, accommodate, bear insult, bear injury, highest yoga." And uh, Adapt, adjust, accommodate. Bear insult, bear injury, highest yoga. He would sing it though. He had a tune, melody he'd put it to. But the idea here is that bear insult, bear injury, it's like, like seeing that there's a, a refuge that's not about the feeling tone. There's another example of, and he was, he's an interesting guy. But a, but a really beautiful person, and a lot of had a, a lot of wonderful students that um, I had contact with over the years. Um, anyway, he uh, he was asked once about how you could tell whether somebody's wise or not, and he had this SB forty shoe beating forty times. Because in India, you know, shoes are, not just in India, but a lot of places in uh, the East, you know, the shoe is considered like a dirty, dirty thing. And you don't put your feet at people. And remember when uh, somebody, was it in Iran, threw a shoe at uh, President Bush? And, that, you know, because it's like that's the most insulting thing you can do. So the idea that, some, that see what happens when you beat the saint 40 times with a shoe See how the person responds. And uh, so this is a, we can just see how we respond when feeling becomes really unpleasant and how we respond when feeling is really pleasant. And we'll see there that some, we'll see the delusion of permanence there. Because when we get really tight, really afraid, 
really reactive when something's unpleasant. It's because we think that unpleasant feeling is more than what it is. And when we get really tight, when something's really pleasant in our life, something really good is happening, it's because we imagine that that feeling is more than what it is. We don't see it, don't understand it as something that comes and goes. many metaphors for this, you know, the ephemeral nature. One is, just as a turbulent river rushes ever onward, so human life passes without ever returning. Nowhere in the sky, nor in the ocean, nor in a cleft of the mountain, in a cleft of the mountains, is there an earthly place where one may make a stand and vanquish death. Now this is interesting because one of the synonyms of uh, Nibbana is the deathless. So we can't vanquish death, but there is the deathless. And it really helps us understand well, where, like, where the refuge actually is. Another uh, famous simile is uh, a lump of foam. So the Buddha is likening a lump of foam like you see on a on the ocean or a lake, you know, just that natural foam that sometimes comes. That that uh, material form, so like the body, the Buddha likens a lump of foam, feeling that we feel like the pleasantness or unpleasantness is like a bubble. Perception that we have, I see just that's a perception, is like a mirage. Mirage mental formations is like a banana tree or a plankton tree. They they look really substantial. Obviously, they got to hold up all that weight, but there's not much there. They they fall apart completely. So he likens mental formations like our thoughts or the different arisings of the mind or like that. And consciousness he likens to an illusion. The Buddha says, "What essence, practitioners, could there be in a lump of foam?" In a bubble, a mirage, a plankton trunk, an illusion. So this is how he describes the the world, like what we call the world. And again, that's like what's so useful about humility, because there's so much certainty, you know, we have about the solidity of this life. Like even even though we know better intellectually, we have some certainty that I'm not dying now or I'm not about to die. And like, where does that come from? Because we all have our own stories that that's not true. (coughs) Just a couple other things and then I'll open it up. This is from that article that I sent you uh, several weeks ago. Uh, a walk in the woods. All compounds break down. All made things fall to pieces. All conditioned things pass away with the passing of those conditions. 
everything and everybody, that includes you and me, deteriorates, ages, decays, breaks up, and passes away. And we, living in the forest of desires, are entirely composed of of the impermanent. Yet our desire impels us not to see this. Through impermanence, though impermanence stares us in the face from every single thing around, and it confronts us when we look within, mind and body are rising and passing away. So don't turn on the TV, don't go to the pictures, read a book, see some food, or a hundred other distractions just to avoid seeing this. This is the one thing really worth seeing. For one who fully sees it in oneself is free. And then I'll just end with this passage from the Buddha that he uh, used in different ways to basically the same formulation over and over. Practitioners, form is impermanent. And he goes on the same passage with feeling, perception, volitional formations or mental formations and consciousness. Practitioners, form, all aspects of the body mind are impermanent. What is impermanent is suffering. What is suffering is not self, not self. What is non-self should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. When one sees this thus, as it really is with correct wisdom, the mind becomes dispassionate and is liberated from the taints by non-clinging. By being liberated, it is steady. By being steady, it is content. By being content, one is not agitated. Being unagitated, one personally attains Nibbana. One understands, destroyed is birth, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done. There is no, no more for this state of being. So we have about 25 minutes. I have a few other things I could share, but that would be nice. I shared my story you know, earlier, and I'm sure others have you have had moments where the reality of impermanence, the reality of death, has made an impact, has transformed your understanding in little and sometimes big ways that maybe you want to share, or maybe you have some questions from the Course that have come up, or from the Buddhist teachings on the subject that seem relevant to bring up. So what comes to mind? Yeah, Carla. Well, I was thinking about, especially when I was thinking about it a lot, but we were talking initially about how our culture says, you know, how we, you know, when we die, we have to dress up. One of the things that I did in my, just about 30, um, in Judaism, there's a, a group called the Hebra Kedisha, which is um, the friends of the holy, is what it's called. And so I was part of a group that would take care of the bodies when they were dying and what we did with them and basically we were there to, to be with the body so that they you know they whenever as we saw it would leave their body the bone would be left the flesh would be left and we were there just to take care of being there but so we basically you know washed their bodies but we didn't dress them up we didn't call them we don't do you know and basically just until they were put in the 
in the girth, back to the girth, just as they are. And I remember seeing the very first body that I saw, and it was made with a part that really hit me, and then I, it comes back to me, the piece that I saw. I mean, this, this, it was an older woman, and she was beautiful. And, and her, her presence to see that piece. And so, I don't know, I just wanted to share that, first of all, how we did it, and also that how it felt to be with a body that was dead. It was, it was amazing. I felt like, the other part of it is, it felt like it was the last gift that somebody could give being with that body because to help, you know, if your body just dropped with that, let's say right here, you can't do anything about it and that's okay, but somebody has to move you if you're not going to stay in this meditation hall of death. So I just thought, in a sense, it's also as an act of generosity to be with that body. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that People experience, not always, of course, but people experience a real sense of peace sometimes being around uh, death or a dead body. And uh, it's just, I think it's worthwhile, like if you're in that situation ever, to be interested in that experience of peace. Like, what are the conditions supporting the arising of that experience of peace? What is the mind understanding or seeing or knowing that is the cause for the experience of peace? Other thoughts? Yeah. Uh, that reminds me of the first time I was in the Holy Catholic. And what struck me at the time was, no, I remember at the time I didn't really think a lot of it was peace, but I was that the body was there and was shut, and that gave me a peace. But I guess, I, then what just came up to me now was thinking of um, the part you read, um, the wax, the candle, the little bit permanent, and the radiance is impermanent. And the way I understood what I was seeing at other times was that radiance, which I would call spirit, depends what you're talking about because there is a sense in Buddhism that there, there is a continuity and this uh, we talked about several weeks ago in the course people might remember that that it is the experience of continuity which we all experience you know like how Monday followed Sunday and we just assume Tuesday is going to follow Monday there's just a sense of continuity and that keeps us from experiencing right now how things are coming and going. So like one of the things, one particular strategy in Buddhist practice is to develop really refined states of consciousness or samadhi so that you're training your mind not to be fooled by the experience of continuity, but to see the radical coming and going of experience. Because both are true. I mean, there is continuity, but 
things are coming and going. And you can really see that in times, in moments, when the mind is really balanced and interested and looking in this particular way at experience. So, you know, like to go back to your comment, there is a sense of continuation, especially, you know, in terms of the neurotic tendencies of the mind, they don't cease that momentum of desire, let's say, and attachment or whatever, that doesn't necessarily cease when the body ceases. And one of the things we can experience, like as our body gets older, and people say this all the time, you know, the mind doesn't get old. There's nothing, you know, 55 about my mind. My body's 55, but my mind is, it doesn't really have an age. You know, the activity of the mind doesn't really have an age. It doesn't deteriorate. It doesn't have the same trajectory as the body does. So there's a real sense that there is some continuity of that mind stream. But it's very easy to misunderstand that because we very much want that continuity to be the continuity of me. So right now, though, we have that same continuity of the mind and we can get to know what that continuity is and what it isn't by observing the mind. You know, what is the continuity of the mind? Like, you know, just a real obvious example that we all know, when we get caught in a train of thought, you know, one thought, one image in the mind leading to another, leading to another. You know, how we do that at night or even with a waking sort of dream, and we find ourselves in such a weird place. And then it occurs, how did I get here? You know, we can even trace back. And it's just so interesting how it's like very lawful how the mind gets where it goes. And so that's continuity. But it's like each particular fragment, you know, each particular image arose and ceased. And as it arose, you know, that its arising was the cause for the next arising. But it had to cease. You know, that moment of consciousness or that idea or that image or thought, it had a birth and a death, a very real birth and death. And so there's both continuity and there's also this radical impermanence where things are arising and completely ceasing. No thread left. And this is like uh, there are images, and we talked about them earlier, about like lighting a candle you know, and then taking that candle and lighting another candle. And there is a certain continuity. The flame, you know, 40 candles later, it's related to that original candle. But it's also, you know, uniquely different. It's not really, although there's some relationship between that flame and maybe the original flame. And maybe, you know, each time then you put the candle out. Yeah, so just some more reflections on your comments about that. Other thoughts that come to mind? Yeah, Steve. Um, uh, I'm sorry about... Um Denial side, I guess, things that I, I was an attendant in, uh, during hospital in New York, um, helping people in all the ways that an attendant did. And um, one of my jobs was to do the kind of uh, monitoring of the time. So one evening I was in his room, and the man was in there by himself, and I was taking his temperature, and he was very restless. And, I, you know, you shake the temperature down to like 90 or something. 
Yeah, that's the other interesting thing is how surprising that experience is. When it's obvious, it's so, I mean, it's so commonplace, but yet it's always surprising. I think everyone who experiences, even with a, an animal, not a non-human animal, you know, it's like, it's always a little shocking to, that this creature, this person is dead. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, Bob. I, 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 this has been a wonderful class.
don't actually, I mean, fortunately, we don't have to um, explain what that all is. And I think that's the idea, is to, to just use the basic facts that life comes and goes. And whether we're there in those moments, because otherwise we can then start to regret that we haven't been in, like, oh, I wish I had that experience. But the thing is, this impermanent, the birth and death is happening all the time. So this is a reality that is available all the time. And in Buddhism, we make this point is made a lot that if we want to understand that moment of death, physical death, then we have this moment to understand because things are radically arising and ceasing now. It's just a more obvious moment of arising and ceasing when the body stops because that particular trajectory of the body is a relatively big thing. But the mind itself is arising and ceasing moment by moment. And people have this. I mean, uh, people talk about their moments. Some of you have heard Kamala talk about her moments of that. Just walking and seeing a flower. You know, it wasn't even a special flower. So at any moment we can have this, the mind opening to something it hadn't seen before about the nature of this what we call our experience, our reality. Thanks, Celine. Time for a couple more. Yeah, no, no call.
done that, you know, some of you know Stephen Levine, I don't know if it was him or him and his wife, um, they had something about one year to live, did anybody do that? It was, uh, kind of made a splash a number of years ago, um, and people, like, gathered in groups, and they would practice this idea of one year to live, and how that changes how what we do, basically, how we see what we do. And I think that's a, that's, I mean, all of these different ways of transforming our normal, our cultural sort of fear of death, this grasping onto life, as if it's something that can be grasped. I mean, something like slipping through our fingers, you can't grasp it. All you can do is create suffering. All we can do is create suffering. Any last words from anybody? Just have a minute left. Want to finish up, Patrice? On the plus hand, it seems to me that in my experience, both being people, because I did some work in a, um, in a hospice in a community with a number of people who died, um, and also with my animals, and it, it seems to me that um, when there's not an agenda, that it really is an occasion of incredible mindfulness. I mean, that's what seems so remarkable that there is that real mindfulness and it's that realization that this is what happens to living living beings and the sort of uh, barrier between the self and that living being is oh right the living being dies and, and it just um, I think it's it's just one of the most profound uh, experiences of mindfulness um, and really a sense of the okayness of it. It's very, very deep, but also really okay. This is what happens. A very sacred, in a way, kind of mindfulness. Yeah. Yeah. At the very least, we are liberated from superficiality in those moments. That's a nice nice place to end. So let's just sit together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.